The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Would you remain standing with me this morning as we read from the 24th Psalm? The earth is the Lord's and therefore the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is this King of glory. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father God, men travel for hundreds, even thousands of miles to get just a glimpse of the power of your creation. Waterfalls, gigantic mountains, the creatures that you've created just by the word of your lips. And yet, Father, you have promised that for those who are yours, for those who have been called according to your purpose, for those who are called by your name, that we can gather in a place like this and see your power, see your might, see your majesty, see your infinite glory in the face of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, may we never take these moments for granted. May we never neglect them. May we never presume upon your grace that there will always be another opportunity, that there will always be tomorrow. Father, we come as a people today recognizing that in the face of that, in the light of your infinite glory, your unending perfection, your unmasked, unmatched majesty, that there is only one rightful response is our true and utter and spirit-filled worship. So we come to worship you now, recognizing that worship is not just songs that we sing, that worship is the direction of our life. It is the commitment of our heart. And in these moments to come, it is the engagement of our minds as we seek to know you and to see you in your holy word. So Father, we ask that in these moments you would keep all the distractions away, that you would sharpen our minds, that you would keep us focused on the eternal things and that we would be changed as a result of the word that we read now. Father, we trust that you will do this for you are faithful and because we pray it in the name of your son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we have a whole lot to cover and very little time to do it. And so let's go ahead and get right into the text. I ask you to stand back to your feet, please. We are still working verse by verse through the 14th chapter of Mark's gospel, we begin in uh, verse 43 this morning. This is the word of God. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. 
And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe this word that we have just heard. Cause it to bring real effect in our lives. May your word never come back void. May your people be strengthened by it. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this had been a truly special night. Now, Passover was always special filled with food and wine and prayer and singing. But this whole week had a very different tone. Everything just seemed so much weightier. Every moment was filled with some expectation of what might this moment mean and what might come on the backside of this. It began, of course, with Jesus and his disciples and their entrance into the city on Palm Sunday. As Jesus rode down off the mountain on the colt of a donkey, everyone knew what this meant. It was a very very clear fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. It was undeniable announcement that Messiah had come. That night, Jesus would enter into the temple complex alone. He would look around, surely thinking through what was coming in, in the days that lay ahead of him. And then he would return back over the Mount of Olives and into the town called Bethany where he would spend the night. Now on Monday morning, the men, they, they appeared to take the very same path back into the city. They entered the temple and what they found there was an absolute madhouse and Jesus was furious. What he found there was people buying and selling and trading. These temple courts where God had invited the people of the nations to come and gather to pray to him, they had made it into a den of robbers. So he chased the men away, overturning tables. As a matter of fact, anyone that sought to come through that temple complex as they carried their goods out into the open market, he restricted their access. Somehow this one man, Jesus Christ the God man, somehow he completely controlled this entire 35-acre span cleansing the temple for the second time during his earthly ministry. Jesus would spend the remainder of that afternoon teaching his people as he walked through the temple complex, teaching them about the ways of the kingdom of God. The following day on Tuesday, as soon as Jesus and his disciples arrive back in the temple complex, they're immediately confronted by the religious leaders. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they challenge him. They demand to know, by what authority do you do these things? Who are you, Jesus? You didn't study under any of the great rabbis. Who gave you the right? Who gave you permission to question our teaching? Who gave you permission to overturn our tables? Who gave you permission to interrupt our religious services? Jesus would not offer them a reply unless they could answer his question. And so he asked these men, he said, John the Baptist, was his baptism from heaven or from man? Because you see, if the men would have said from heaven, That would have been a confession that Jesus himself was from God because John had come to give testimony about Jesus. But if they said from man, then there was sure to be violence because the people loved John the Baptist. And so struck by fear, these religious and learned men, these men who claimed to know the ways of the kingdom of God, these men who claimed to speak for God himself, they were forced to utter the last words they wanted to say. We don't know. The rest of the day would go just like this. Jesus teaching his disciples while these religious leaders would gather together in their little huddle and try to come up with tricky questions. Little clever questions, traps that they could lay before Jesus. They were seeking to ensnare him in his own words. But Jesus would handle their questions with absolute ease. He would step through the traps like they weren't there at all, exposing the foolishness of these so-called learned men. Eventually, Jesus would look to the crowds around him and he would say, beware of these men. They are blind guides. They love the pats on the back. They love to be called out in the marketplace, but they are blind guides, and if you follow after them, you'll find that they lead you into utter darkness. That night on the way out of the temple, Jesus' disciples were looking around at the majesty of, this, of all these buildings. And yet Jesus struck a great blow when he looked to them and he said, you see these buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. The entire place will be left desolate. The men were amazed. If this place... If this place where God has met with his people, this place where God comes to dwell, this place where God welcomes our sacrifices and our prayers, if this place is going to be torn down, then surely that must mean the end of the world. Surely that must mean the end of this age. Surely that must mean that at that moment, Jesus Christ will return. And so they ask Jesus, what will be the sign of the end of the age? How will we know? What will be the time when these things come to pass? So Jesus and his disciples, back on the Mount of Olives, they sit down under a fig tree, and there he begins to express to them, to teach them what has come to be called the Olivet Discourse. 
Now, we spent many weeks working through this, just trying to understand exactly how we're to interpret Jesus' words. How do we understand what Jesus is talking about? And I pray that above anything else, what you remember about our time in that text was the great humility that we approached it with. For 2,000 years, many good and saintly and godly men have not been able to come to absolute agreement as to what portions of what Jesus was speaking about in this Olivet Discourse. What portions spoke about the destruction of the temple? What portions spoke about his return? What portions spoke about the gathering in of the saints and when that would happen? I pray that you recognize the humility that we were not going to be the first people to figure this out perfectly. We were not going to be the first people to be able to say with absolute confidence, we know exactly how to interpret what Jesus has said. And yet, no matter how we understand the Olivet Discourse, I think there are three things that we could absolutely say. Number one, that Jesus was accurately predicting that Jerusalem would be destroyed. That in the year 70 AD, led by the Roman military leader named Titus, that the Roman army would come in, they would seize Jerusalem, they would destroy the temple in one of the saddest scenes in all of human history. Secondly, that as the church is scattered, as the true saints of God go out seeking to gather together other disciples, seeking to expand the kingdom of God by sharing the gospel by which men are saved, that they are sure to to meet persecution and suffering and even death that we cannot be caught off guard by this. We cannot expect the world to receive us with open arms that until the very last moment when Jesus returns, we are going to meet suffering and trial. But thirdly, and most importantly, Jesus Christ is coming back. We don't know when. No one knows when. Not the holy angels in heaven, not even the Son, only the Father himself. But we can rest assured that Jesus Christ is coming back. And the greatest display of power and glory and majesty and might that the world has ever seen, Jesus Christ will return. He will gather together his saints. He will judge the whole world, casting all evil and all evildoers from the earth forever into a pit of eternal darkness. Dear friends, Jesus Christ is coming back. While we gather today with that is our ultimate hope. And because of that, we must stay awake. We must stay on guard. We must not be caught sleeping when that day comes. Now, we aren't told much about Tuesday. It seems that that was the day when Judas went and met with the Jewish uh, Jewish Supreme Court, with the Sanhedrin. It seems as though it was that day when Judas met with these men and he agreed that he was going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, in order to make clear to us the darkness of that moment, it seems as though Mark then presents to us a flashback, as if he goes to Saturday night, the night before Jesus' triumphal entry. It was on that night when Jesus was at a dinner party at the home of a man called Simon the leper. As we drew from other gospels, it appears to us as though this same house was the house where Lazarus and Mary and Martha also lived. But Jesus was there, and he was there for this dinner party. And remember that it's there that Mary came in, and in one of the most beautiful pictures of true self-forgetting worship, she takes an alabaster flask, a true fortune of an offering, a pound of pure, fragrant nard, and she breaks it. She pours it over Jesus, wiping it into his feet with her hair. Now the beauty of this night, the beauty of this moment of worship, it shines all the darker, I mean all the brighter, excuse me, when compared to the darkness of Judas' soul. This man who had walked with Jesus for so many years, this man who had seen his power, who had participated in his ministry and yet would sell him out because of the temptations of Satan, because of the own greed in his heart, because he saw that he could no longer steal from the community treasury, he decided, I'm going to get what I can now. And he was going to hand Jesus over, betraying him into the hands of these men that sought to destroy him. Now on Thursday, we see that Peter and John, they go ahead of the group into the city. They're to find a man there carrying a vessel of water. They were going to follow that man into a house, and in the upper room of that house, they would find a room prepared. That would be where Jesus and his disciples would observe the last true Passover. It was on that night when he would institute for us the Lord's Supper. And it was at that moment when Judas would slink off into the night to go and make his final preparations for the betrayal of Jesus. Now, somewhere about midnight, Jesus and the remaining 11, they would depart the city. They would go back to the Mount of Olives. They would go to a garden there, a garden called Gethsemane. It would be there that Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the Lesser and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, they would all be left somewhere near the entrance to the garden. But Peter and James and John, they would be welcome to go deeper with Jesus. It was there that Jesus would fall down on his face, 
filled with great distress, he would fall down on his face before the Father. His mind, his emotions, even his body overcome with just the anguish of everything that lay before him on this night. So much so that we read in Luke's gospel that his sweat became like great droplets of blood. And it was there that he cried out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Would you allow this hour to pass from me? Father, I do not want to drink the cup of your wrath. I do not want to take the sins of men upon myself, and I do not want to suffer while being unable to see your beautiful and blessed face. Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other option in the entire universe, let us do that, but not my will, but yours be done. Three times Jesus came and found his closest friends asleep. He had told them to sit there. Would you stay awake with me? Would you stay awake and would you stay on guard? Because Satan knows what this night means, and he is going to attack. So would you stay here and would you pray that you would not fall into temptation? Pray that your soul would not be lost. Now Luke tells us that God sends an angel to his son to strengthen him. We aren't told exactly what the angel did, but it seems very likely what the messenger confirmed for him is, no, there is no other option. It is the will of your father to crush you. This is the only way that he can both punish sin and save sinners. I have to also imagine that the strengthening came as he affirmed the father's love for him as he confirmed the Father's promises for him, as he says, Jesus, you will drink this cup, but your Father will not abandon you to the grave. You will not taste corruption. Now, whatever the message, at that moment we find that Jesus is filled with a, a steadfast commitment as he moves forward to do what his Father has called him to do. He seems to turn to his Father and say, Father, if there is no way for this cup to pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. Make sure that I make it to the cross. The matter was settled. So Jesus rose to his feet. He went back to his disciples who were, sleeping, who were sleeping and he tells them, it is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then we come to this morning's text. Now, before we walk through this text, as we typically do line by line, I need to give you a word of preparation. I find myself this week in my studies spending a whole lot more time than usual bouncing back and forth between the various gospel accounts. There, there are so many precious insights that only one of the gospel writers or another provides to us. And, and I couldn't bear the thought of waiting. It, it will take us years to get back to another one of these gospels. You realize this. We're in our second year now in Mark's gospel. We're going to move on. We're not going to go to another gospel after this. It may be 10 years before God leads us back to study another one of these gospel accounts. And I couldn't bear the thought of waiting 10 years to bring these precious tidbits to you. These aren't just meaningless little bits of trivia. I want to show you the most robust picture possible. I want to show you the most well-rounded, fullest picture possible of what happened at this incredibly important moment in the ministry, in the passion of Jesus Christ. And so what you'll find is that all of the Gospels are in play this morning. While we are working verse by verse through Mark 14, you'll find us in Matthew 26 and Luke 22 and in John 18. I pray that I don't lose you in that. I pray that you're able to stay with me as I move through there. I'll try to move as slowly as possible, but I want you to see the purpose in this. God has blessed us with these four gospels, and I think he's just unveiling to us a picture that we would be truly foolish to neglect. So what we found in this morning's text, verse 43, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, immediately. That's Mark's favorite transition, isn't it? He never allows our eyes to settle on one picture too long. He always keeps the action moving. And yet in this instance, it's immediately after Jesus has just offered that prayer. It's immediately after Jesus has just been strengthened by the angel. It's immediately after we see all the anguish and all the pain and all the sorrow and all the fear about what lays ahead completely dissolve. Jesus stands up in commitment and then immediately as he is still speaking to his disciples, as he rouses them from their sleep and he says, rise, let us be going, my betrayer is at hand. This crowd comes. Now the group that was coming to confront Jesus, they would have been really, really hard to miss. They would have probably been seen and heard from miles away. Now Mark, he just uses the word crowd here. And you'll remember as we studied through Mark's gospel, we've talked much about the crowd and very rarely are they viewed in a positive light. Is news of Jesus' power, his ability to heal and provide, is that news spread throughout all the earth? We found the crowds growing to astronomical levels. These people coming just to see, just to get a glimpse of Jesus. Many of them just wanting earthly, earthly comforts. Many of them just curious to see how he was going to amaze them on this day. People coming from all over Israel just to hear him. 
Now the apostles, they were ecstatic. They believed that Jesus had come to establish an immediate and earthly and political kingdom. And you needed a crowd to do something like this. It was absolutely critical. But we know that that wasn't the plan. Jesus hadn't come to establish an earthly kingdom at this time. He had called men to repent and trust in him. And it was clear that the majority of this crowd, the majority of this great throng, they had no interest in coming to true saving faith. They wanted bread. They wanted healing. They wanted earthly comforts. And more often than not, we'll find that this crowd is nothing more than just an obstacle. Now, they're relatively harmless. They don't mean Jesus any harm, but they are a hindrance to his movement. They are a barrier to other people that seek to come him come to him for true and faithful reasons but the crowd that comes to him on this night they're far from benign you see John tells us that Judas had somehow been able to secure for himself a band of soldiers we aren't told how Judas pulls this off I have to imagine that perhaps he and the Sanhedrin had gone to Pilate or maybe to one of the governor's underlings and had told them that Jesus was a threat that he was a threat to peace in this region somehow though Judas is able to procure for himself a band of soldiers the Greek word there is spiron. It means cohort. This is a Roman cohort. That's a military unit. Specifically, a cohort is one-tenth of a legion. A legion is 6,000 soldiers. 10% of 6,000 is 600. So what we see on this night is up to 600 Roman soldiers coming out to confront Jesus while being led by their tribune. That's their commander. Luke tells us that along with those soldiers come some of the officers from the temple. You see, the temple, they had their own police force. These were men that walked around with clubs, making sure they kept the peace. Because if there was one thing that the Jewish people were terrified of, it was the Romans coming in and squashing them. They knew that the Romans would not settle for any kind of an uprising. So if there was even a spark of rebellion, they were going to come in with great violence and put it out. And so these men were going to make sure they walked around with clubs using whatever force was necessary short of death to keep the peace, making sure that they didn't give the Romans any excuse to intervene in Jewish matters. And yet we find them coming together here. Dear friends, how many times throughout Jesus' life have we find people on opposing sides, people that couldn't agree about anything else in all the world coming together based on one united plan that Jesus Christ must be destroyed? We saw it with the Sanhedrin and the Herodians. We saw it with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And now we see it with the Roman soldiers, the temple police, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This crowd may have been upwards of a thousand people all coming together for one united purpose. Now John tells us that they come out with torches and lanterns. Now because the Jewish people, they keep a lunar calendar, we know that Passover happened on a full moon. So this would have been a brighter night than usual, but these men weren't going to take any chances. They would have come out with torches and lanterns, making sure that they recognized who this Jesus was. Again, I say, there was no sneaking up on him. It does not take the omniscient Son of God to recognize what was happening. As you hear the feet stomping the ground, as you hear the swords rattling, as you hear the chatter between all the men, as you see them exit the east side of the temple, coming up the Mount of Olives and headed towards this garden, they knew what was coming. Verse 44, now the, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. That was the plan. Now, despite the fact that Jesus was very well known, despite the fact that he had been there in the temple arguing with this man for the entire week, the Roman soldiers maybe wouldn't have been able to recognize him. Perhaps all the Galilean Jews looked the same to them. And so Judas was going to give them a sign. The one that I kiss, this is the one that you're after. This is the one, we're going to make sure that you don't arrest the wrong guy. I'm not going to take any chances by standing here and pointing in the middle of a group. I'm going to walk up to this man and kiss him. And then immediately, that's the man that you are to seize. That's the man that you are to lead away under guard. Verse 45, and when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, we might do well to be reminded that with the possible exception of John, this may be the first realization that the other apostles had with regards to who Judas was and what Judas was all about. You remember that Jesus already told them that one of the 12 would be the one to betray him. And yet even as Jesus on that night, during the Passover, as he said to Judas, what you're going to do, do it quickly. We read that no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that it was because Judas had the money bag and that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should go and give some money to the poor. So perhaps even as Judas walks up and gives Jesus this kiss, they still don't recognize what's going on at this moment. And yet he comes up to him. He gives him a kiss. And this is not an abnormal greeting in that part of the world. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 16 that we're to greet each other with a holy kiss. We still see these kinds of greetings in other more hospitable cultures all throughout our world. Now, the proper protocol amongst Jewish men was that a slave might kiss the foot of his master. A subordinate, he might kiss the hand of his teacher. But to kiss a man on the face, this was a true show of honor. It showed a special love and intimacy between the two men. Now, the Greek word that's used for kissed here, it is kataphileo. It means, it has a very strong sense to it, a very passionate sense to it. It means to kiss much, or to kiss again and again, or to kiss tenderly. This is the same word that Jesus used in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. This is the kisses that the man bestowed upon his son who he once thought was dead as he just smothered him with kisses, just showered his son with kisses. We see this picture illustrated even more clearly, I think, in the seventh chapter of Luke's gospel. You remember it's there that Jesus was at a dinner party at the house of a Pharisee. And it was there that a sinful woman comes in. And in a scene very, very similar to the dinner party that we saw in Bethany, we see this woman, she comes in and we read, she has an alabaster flask of ointment. She stands behind Jesus at his feet and weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now you remember that the religious leaders, they thought to themselves, if Jesus really is a prophet, then he would know who this woman was. He would know what kind of sinner she is and he wouldn't dare let her touch him like this. Jesus confronts the men in their arrogance. He tells them, this woman knows her sin. Dear friends, you wonder why we talk about sin so much around here? You wonder why we confront sin so much around here? It's in part because of this. When a man, when a woman, when they come to understand the depths of their sin, their true joy, their true passion, their true gratitude for Jesus Christ, the one who spares them, only grows. This woman knew who she was, and she knew who Jesus was. And this is the reason that she responded like this. But Jesus then turns to the hypocrites and he says this, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Now, philema is the word that's used there for an ordinary kiss. You didn't even give me an ordinary kiss. But from the time that I came in, she has not ceased kissing my feet. Cataphileo. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. Do you see the difference? Now, I don't want to make a bigger deal out of this than Mark does. It may not be all that significant that this is the word that he used because some of the uh, uh, gospel writers don't use that same word, but I think there's some significance here. I think we have to ask ourselves, what is Judas doing? Why does he choose to smother Jesus or to give Jesus a passionate kiss at this moment? A peck would have done. If the only purpose was to identify Jesus Christ, all he had to do was walk through the crowd, go to Jesus, call him rabbi, and give him a kiss on the cheek, and that would have sealed the deal. So what was Judas doing? Whether he was smothering with kisses or whether this was a long and passionate kiss, what was the purpose? Dear friends, I think this was an act of mockery. One last insult. As Judas greets Jesus as the Messiah, and you must never get it twisted, Judas knew who Jesus was in his mind. It hadn't penetrated his heart. It hadn't driven him to the right conclusion. It hadn't driven him to worship. But Judas knew who Jesus was. He had seen his power. He had seen how with just a word he could raise a dead man to life. He had seen how he could cast out demons. He had seen how he could walk on water. He had seen the power of Jesus Christ and he had participated in preaching the gospel and healing men and casting out demons himself. He had heard the story of Peter and James and John as they came down off that high mountain and told them about the glory that Jesus revealed, that glory which had always been his. Judas knew who Jesus was. He just didn't like it. And yet he comes up to him in this moment and he cries out in a big show, teacher, rabbi. And then he throws himself upon his neck and he smothers him with kisses. This man that he had spent three years with, eating with, teaching with, being protected by. He comes up and he kisses him passionately over and over and over again. He kisses Jesus all while holding the knife of betrayal behind his back. Making a mockery of true worship. This is a sarcastic caricature of what we saw with Mary on that Saturday night as she fell down and cried out to Jesus. This is a mockery of this sinful woman that fell down at Jesus' feet and kissed him over and over and over again. Now, according to Luke, Jesus says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, this isn't that Jesus was caught off guard. This has been prophesied all, all the way back from the Old Testament. Jesus has already told everybody that this thing would happen. 
but he's going to force this man to deal with who he is. He's going to look into his heart and look into his soul and say, Judas, this is who you are. This is what you have come to do. Matthew tells us that he looks at him and he says, friend, do what you've come to do. Jesus wasn't scared of what Judas had come to do. He wasn't caught off guard. He was going to force Judas to act, and now was the time. And now the apostle that Jesus loved, that is John, he, he gives us a picture of something absolutely fascinating. So I'd ask you, if you have your Bibles out, go ahead and flip to the 18th chapter of Mark's, uh, excuse me, John's gospel. We're going to be there for just a moment. This is John's account of what happened on that night. So John chapter 18, we begin in verse 4. So then Jesus, knowing all that would happen, he came forward. So we're reminded yet again that Jesus Christ is not caught off guard by anything. He was not a victim. He was not caught up in the circumstances. Jesus Christ knows everything that lay ahead, and yet he moved forward in steadfast commitment. He would glorify the Father every step of the way to the very end. He moves forward knowing everything that would happen, knowing that he himself had been moving all creation towards this moment. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and he said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, and he said to them, I am he. Now this doesn't seem shocking at face value. They're looking for Jesus. We want Jesus of Nazareth. He raises his hand and says, present, here, I am he. But this is the beauty of looking at the Greek text. Because what we find there is that the word is ego ami, I am. You ever heard that phrase before? Ego ami. It's a thing that runs all throughout John's gospel. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, Ego ami, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, Ego ami, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10, 7, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Ego ami, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 11, ego ami, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. John 11, 25 to 26, Jesus says to her, ego ami, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. John 14, 6, Jesus says to him, ego ami, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 15, 5, ego ami, I I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Ego ami, I am. Dear friends, this was not just a statement of self-identity. This was a proclamation of divinity. Jesus saying, I am. You remember back when Moses interacts with God, as God is calling Moses, he's going to send him to raise the Jewish people up to confront Pharaoh and then to ultimately lead them out of their slavery. And he says, who do I tell them sent me? What's even your name, God? And he says, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. I am, Y-H-W-H, the tetragrammaton, the name of God, Yahweh, I am the God who is above and beyond and greater and outside and other than all of creation, the God who has always been, the God who does not change, the God who does not become, the God who does not diminish, the great I am has sent you, the eternal and infinite God of the universe, I am. The Jewish people knew what this meant. That's why they sought to stone Jesus whenever he looked at them and said, before Abraham was, I am. Ego ami. The infinite and eternal God of the universe. The God who called your father Abraham. The God who you swear that you love and worship. The God who you will stand before in judgment at the end of time. Ego ami, I am. I am the eternal God of the universe. He says, I am. They ask him, he asks them, excuse me, who do you seek? Who are you after? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And they drew back and fell on the ground. I don't know what to make with this. What, what do you do with this? I mean, as best I can understand what's happening here, Jesus opens his mouth, declares that he is God, and a thousand men fall on their backs. A thousand grown men fall down to the ground at this one utterance from the mouth of the Son of God, I am. That would make sense though, wouldn't it? He is the Word. The word that was in the beginning, 
the word that was with God, the word that is God, the all-powerful word of God, the word by whom all things are created, the one through whom all things are held together, the great I am, by one word from his mouth. We read in Revelation 19 that he will come, and as a great sword comes from his mouth, he will strike down his enemies. And on this night, with just one word, I am, these men fall down, and they are helpless. And yet we don't find Jesus running. We don't find Jesus destroying them. He waits for the men to rise back to their feet. They are still committed to take the life of the I am. And Jesus Christ is still committed to laying it down. He lets them scurry back to their feet and he says to them again, I'm still in John 18 verse seven, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill a word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I have not lost one. Jesus forces these men to confirm, who are you looking for? Who have you come seeking? And they confirm yet again, it is Jesus. And he says, I've told you who I am. I've revealed myself not just by the kiss of Judas, but I've confessed to you that I am Jesus Christ. I am. Now you must let these other men go. You didn't come for them. I'm, you don't have to go amongst the 12 and figure out which of us is him. And so I'm telling you, I am he. Now let these other men go. But why does he say that he did that? Why does John tell us that Jesus said this? He says, because he wants to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. When did Jesus say those words? When did Jesus say of those you have given me, I have not lost one? It's on this same night. Turn to the left just a bit to John chapter 17. Because you're going to find there the high priestly prayer. It was there in the upper room in the middle of all this great teaching that Jesus is praying on behalf of those that are his. He's praying on behalf of those that the Father has given to him. And he's asking God to keep them. He's asking God to watch over and protect and hold fast to them. And we read this in John 17. I'm skipping down a bit to verse 9. John 17, 9 begins like this. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they might be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. Here we go. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus is praying to the Father here, and he's saying, Father, I'm coming to you, and what I'm asking you to do is to hold these men fast in your hands. Hold them in your name. Make certain that their faith does not fail. Make certain that not one of them is lost, because, Father, that was my commitment while I was here. While I was here, I did everything necessary, like a good shepherd does. Even at the moment that we read tonight, he is laying down his life. He himself is being struck that the sheep could escape. He's saying, Father, I've given my life to make certain that I don't lose one that you have given to me. But how are these two things connected? Think with me now. We're doing some rational thinking now. Jesus is saying, I am he. I am Jesus of Nazareth. You have to let these other men go. John tells us that Jesus stepping in and saying, you have to let these other men physically escape has something to do with him saying to the Father, I haven't lost the soul of a one of them. I've made sure that they're kept in your name. I've made sure that they're that they're." that they're right where they need to be, that they're eternally secure, and I'm asking you to do the same thing. How are those two things connected? Dear friends, I submit to you this morning, it's because these men were not prepared to face the trials that lay ahead. Now, they weren't going to have to drink the cup of the Father's wrath, but even the trial that lay ahead, even the physical beatings, even standing before the Sanhedrin, even standing up to the questioning that lay ahead that these men in their faith could not endure. And that's why Jesus was protecting them. He was ensuring that they would be spared from this trial. He would not allow them to walk through it on this night. Church, do you see how much hope there is in this? You have no clue the ways by which your master is keeping you. You have no clues the way by which Jesus Christ is ensuring that you will arrive in glory. We see this. I struggled with this greatly this week and reading through the commentaries, finally I came to something by Dr. MacArthur that directed my attention to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You'll remember this verse. It's very familiar to most of you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted 
Another translation for that can be tested. This isn't just temptation to sin. These are any of the tests, any of the trials, any of the suffering that comes in this lifetime. He will not allow you to be tested or tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation or testing, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He's saying, I will not allow you to be swept away. There is no temptation, there is no test, there is no trial, there is no suffering that comes in this lifetime unless God wills it. I will not allow you to face anything which will destroy your faith. And when I bring you to the things, whatever it is that I allow you to walk through, I will make certain that you can endure it, not in your own power, not in your own strength, not in the weapons of this world, not in your own abilities. I will work in you to endure. I will work in you that your faith, that your salvation comes out the backside of this. I will make certain that you can endure and that you can endure well. I will give you a way of escape that you might not sin, that there's no temptation, there's no trial, there's no suffering in this lifetime that you walk through that gives you an excuse to sin, that gives you an excuse to dishonor God. He says, I will always provide the way, and I will make certain that as you come out to the backside that you still know that you are mine because I will hold you. Isn't that what he did with Peter? Peter was going to be shook. He was going to be wrecked to the point that he was going to deny knowing Jesus Christ three times, but he says, Peter, when you turn brother you will turn and when you turn I will use you to strengthen your brothers Peter would not be lost like Judas Jesus would make certain of that the great high priest interceding he said I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail he says I intercede on behalf of you as I go to the father making sure that whatever trial whatever temptation whatever suffering he brings you through making sure that you will endure but dear friends there are times when he says you won't go through this trial because you would not endure you would not hold up. That's what he's doing right here. He says, anything I bring you to, I will give you the grace to endure. I will give you the out. I will give you a way to make sure that you endure well, that you do not sin, that you hold fast in the faith, that you endure all the way through this in a way that glorifies the Father above everything else. And what we see him doing here is he's looking at these men and he says, you're not ready for this. You're not ready to face the Sanhedrin on this night. Your faith would not hold up. And so as a way of making sure that he does not lose a one of them, he sets them free. But they're going to come right back. You realize this, right? After the Passover, I mean, after the uh, day of Pentecost, excuse me, with the sending of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is not with them physically. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sends to them the Holy Spirit, and they're right back before these men that he just protected them from. He says, you weren't ready here. Now you're ready. Not because you're better. Not because you're stronger. Not because you're mightier. Because I am in you. And when I come and I reside in you, then you will stand before these men and then you'll endure well. You see the assurance that you find in this? You see the hope that you find in this? He's not gonna lead you into something that's gonna destroy your faith. So if you find yourself in the middle of something and you're failing, I don't know what you do with that. You cry out to him and say, am I even yours? You've promised me that I will not fail. Am I not, avail am I not availing myself to the out that you've given me? Because I'm not enduring well right now. I'm falling into sin. I'm falling into rebellion. I'm not glorifying your name. He says, that's not the way I do this thing. There's never a time when I lead you into something, I go, man, this dude's gonna drown, but well. Dear friends, I pray you see the joy in this. I pray you see the hope in this. As he is not only moving all the universe to make certain that you are secure, that even in the middle of those moments, he is praying on your behalf that your faith will not fail. So back to Mark's gospel, Mark 14, verse 46. So they then lay hands on him and they seize him. So this was a first. You remember back in Luke 4 when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, the people were outraged at the teaching, the way that he spoke about himself. So they drove Jesus out of town. They take him up to the bow of a hill and they seek to throw him down to his death. But Luke tells us that he just passed right through him. They couldn't even lay a hand on him. Dear friends, you don't lay a hand on Jesus. You don't seize Jesus unless it is time. Well, now it was time. Verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, even if you knew nothing whatsoever about this scene, even if you had never studied any of the gospels, even if you didn't know who it was, if I just said to you, hey guys, one of the apostles was impetuous enough, he was gonna whip out a sword and try to take on an army of a thousand men, you would immediately know who I was talking about. Everybody says, Peter. You know who it was. Now, 
John, of course, confirms that for us, that it was Peter. And Luke tells us, just a little bit before this, in Luke 22, verse 38, Luke tells us that the men were carrying two swords. At Jesus' instruction, they were carrying two swords, and you better believe Peter was going to be one of the dudes carrying a sword. It also tells us that they look to Jesus and they ask him, would you have us now to attack? Is now the time for us to use this sword? Is that the moment you are leading us towards? Jesus, should we strike now? But Peter doesn't wait for an answer. He pulls his sword and he swings it hard. I have to wonder if this wasn't an overcompensation. Jesus has told him, Peter, quit your blustering. All, all your promises that you're going to endure to the end, that you're not going to fall away like the others, that you're not going to deny me, that, that even though all the others are going to scatter, that you're going to stay with me even if it means death. Peter, I assure you that before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. And it seems that this was Peter's response. Jesus had told him, you know, your spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so when the moment of trial comes, what does he do? The most fleshly thing possible. He resorts to physical violence. He uses worldly means to try to prove his commitment to Jesus Christ. How many times have I been there? The word of God warns me of my weakness. My sin is obvious to me and anyone else that does any amount of life with me. Jesus Christ has told me what I'm supposed to do with this. Surrender my pride and come to him. Give up my reputation and fall on my knees. But rather than staying alert, rather than staying on guard, rather than coming to his word and seeking his face, rather than crying out to him to strengthen me, rather than falling on my knees before him in prayer, I go the way of the world. Well, I don't desert Christ. I don't deny his name. I still come to church. I still serve him. I still proclaim myself to be a Christian, but I seek to do it in my own strength. I seek the counsel and the ways of the world. I claim to be defending Jesus Christ, but in reality, all I care about is myself. So in addition to revealing that it is Peter that has swung his sword, John tells us that it's also the high priest's servant that he strikes, a man called Malchus. I don't know why we're told this guy's name. Really, this story only mentions to us three people, Judas, Jesus, Jesus, and Malchus. But he swings it and he catches the guy's ear. And, and the Greek word there is the diminutive form of ear. So I don't know if he chopped off the dude's whole ear or maybe he just caught the lobe or maybe even the tip. Alistair Begg, I, I heard some of his preaching this week and Alistair Begg quipped that Judas, uh, excuse me, that Peter was even either the greatest swordsman of all time or the worst. He's either so good that he can take off an ear or so bad he can miss an entire head. But it seems like he was swinging for the man's neck. This was a kill shot. That's what it was intended to be. And the man either ducked or dodged or something and he catches the dude's ear. So Luke tells us that at this moment, Jesus reaches out his hand and he heals the man. Dear friends, don't miss this. This isn't the major thrust of this morning's text. This isn't the whole purpose behind this story, but You've got to see this. This was a servant of the high priest. This man was coming to aid in the arrest, the false accusation, and the murder of Jesus Christ. Had there ever been a person with a right to fail to do good by another, was it not Jesus on this night? And yet he not only stayed the hand of Peter, he reached out his hand and healed this man who had been wounded. A gorgeous picture of self-forgetting, selfless, God-glorifying love and compassion and grace. Then Jesus turns and he admonishes the apostle. John tells us that Jesus looks at Peter and he says, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? So Peter is yet again to get between Jesus and the, attempted to get between Jesus and the cross. You remember that when Jesus first told his apostles that he was going to Jerusalem to lay down his life, but that three days later he would rise again? You remember it was Peter that said, no, 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 that doesn't happen, Jesus. Far be it. It's at that moment that Jesus looked to him and said, get behind me, Satan. For your eyes are not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. And yet here we find him trying to do the very same thing, but this time by force. But Jesus says, I must drink this cup. This is the only way that the Father can be glorified is I forgive sinners and I and he punishes sin in me. Peter, do you recognize that you're trying to stop the only way that you can be saved? Quit being an idiot and get out of the way. Matthew 26 tells us at this point, Matthew 26, verse 52, that then Jesus said to him, this is to Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Peter, 
You're playing the world's games and you're going to taste the world's punishment. They will kill you and they will be justified in killing you. Put your sword back in its sheath. Verse 53, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 12 legions of angels? Peter has no clue. If the situation called for violence, Jesus wouldn't need Peter's help. He says with just a word to my father, he can send me 12 legions of angels. We read back in 2 Kings 19 that with the sending of just one angel, he was able to wipe out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Jesus said with the word, my father can send 12 legions. That's 72,000 angels. By the way, just out of curiosity, I did the math. If God were to send, it, let's assume that that was all that angel could do was kill 185,000 people. I'm assuming he could do more. Let's assume that he could only kill 185,000 trained men, trained soldiers. If God were to just send 72,000 of those angels, there would be enough of them to wipe out every person on earth if we were all trained three times over. If God's going to start a war, he doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your might. He doesn't need your strength. He doesn't need your sword. So back to Mark's text, verse 48. Jesus says to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. The word for robber here is less than. It's the same word that Jesus used of the men that attacked the Good Samaritan, or, or excuse me, the, in the story of the Good Samaritan, the man that attacked the man walking down the street. Those robbers, those vicious and violent highwaymen. That's the word that Jesus uses of himself here. He says, is that who you believe that I am? Is that who they thought Jesus was, the Prince of Peace? The one who taught and lived and loved and healed unlike anyone who had ever lived. Now perhaps Judas and the Sanhedrin, they had convinced Pilate that that's who Jesus was. That he was some kind of a religious zealot that sought to use force to overthrow the Roman government. Or maybe they genuinely believed this. Maybe they had genuinely convinced themselves that Jesus was a violent rebel. See church, darkness cannot stand before light. Lies cannot stand to be before truth. Sin revolts in the presence of righteousness and evil cannot stand the Holy One of God. Anytime the glory of God reveals itself, anytime we see a true picture of the Holy One of God, his compassion, his love, his mercy, his truth, there's an unexplainable and irrational fear that comes upon sinful men, that comes upon those that are not his. So they come out against him, the only one that has ever lived that has truly and infinitely loved his neighbor as he loved himself. They come out against him with swords and clubs and lanterns and lights and a full army. But again, I say to you, Jesus Christ was not shook. Jesus Christ was not caught off guard. You see his ultimate composure. He's not swept up in the emotions. The emotions that we saw just moments earlier, those were right emotions. You realize Jesus did not sin in the garden. Those were the rightful responses. As a matter of fact, I told you it would have possibly been sinful had Jesus wanted to take this cup, wanted separation from his father. That was the only right response for the infinitely holy son of God than to say, Father, I don't want this cup. There was no sin in those emotions, and yet now they're gone. We see them replaced by this absolute commitment to whatever the Father has called me to do. Whatever he wills, he wills this, and I move forward towards this. All of creation had been moving towards this point. Absolute commitment to uphold the will of his Father. He knew, it had been affirmed for him, this is the Father's will, and that's all he needed to know. Dear friends, that's all you need to know. Is it the Father's will? Then I will walk through it to his glory. Is it the Father's will? Then I will walk through it in a way that points to his righteousness and his holiness and his perfection and his power and not mine. Jesus then reminded these men, I've been in the temple all week. You could have arrested me at any time. In fact, if you had asked me for an audience, I would have given you one. But these cowards, they're not gonna do that because they know, number one, that Jesus had put them in their place time after time. Number two, he knows that the crowds wouldn't stand for that. They knew that they had no warrant for his arrest. So they weren't going to arrest him in the temple, but we know that there's a greater reason than that. More than just their fear, more than just their cowardice, they didn't lay hands on Jesus because it was not yet time. This is a common theme all throughout John's gospel, the theme of time or hour. Not not in a chronological sense, but with regards to the providential plan of God. We see it back in John chapter two as Jesus' mother approaches him at the wedding in Canaan and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine and this is an embarrassing event. Could, Could you... 
Could you just intercede in some way? And Jesus looks to her and says, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 7 is Jesus' brothers come to him and say, hey, why don't you go into Judea and do some of those magic tricks? Why don't you go into Judea and prove to those people who you are? And Jesus says to his brothers, my time has not yet come. John 8, as Jesus does eventually arrive in Judea for the festival, for the feast. And we read there that the religious leaders are outraged because he tells them, I, tells them that I am the light of the world. And they seek his death. But we read that no one could arrest him because his hour had not yet come. But then as we get to the 12th chapter of John's gospel, there's this shift. No longer does he talk about his hour not yet coming. We see her immediately following Jesus' triumphal entry in John 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. At the beginning of the Last Supper, Jesus reads John 13. Jesus says that he knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. John 17, at the beginning of the high priestly prayer, he says that he lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may be glorified in you. Now Luke, in his parallel to this morning's text, he picks up this same theme, the same theme of the hour, the same theme of the time. Because he says that Jesus looked to these men and he says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus said, this is my time. My time and my hour has come. The time for me to lay down my life the time for me to glorify my father, the time for me myself to be glorified as I go to him. This whole event, all of creation has been moving towards this moment and my time has come, my hour has come. And as a way to fulfill that hour, as a way to manifest that time, this is now your hour. This is your hour and your power of darkness. It's as if Jesus were standing before them and saying, here's your shot. This is what you've wanted all along and yet my father has restricted it from happening. But now's the time. You will do as Satan desires. You will do as you desire because my father says that now is the time. Do your worst because by that I will truly be glorified. I will be fulfilling my father's will. I will be saving these men who even in this moment turn and run from me. So they seized him and they ran him away. From this moment forward, no longer will we see Jesus surrounding by, surrounded by his apostles. No longer will we see him surrounded by great crowds that came to adore him, to praise him, to worship him, to scream his name, to seek the power of his miracles even, to eat the bread from his hand and to receive the healing that he offers. Instead, he would be led and spit upon and mocked and tried and beaten and crucified by men that were absolute, resolute in their commitment that they must destroy him. Verse 50, and they all left him and fled. Just as Jesus predicted, the shepherd had not even yet been properly struck and these men who had just moments earlier been swearing their fealty, they ran. They tucked their tails and they ran. They were happy to swing the sword. They were happy, willing to fight using the weapons of this world. Isn't that the way it works? We feel quite comfortable fighting with the, with the weapons of the world. We're quite happy to go out there and fight and defend the name of Jesus Christ on the internet or wherever it may be. But the minute we come to the rec recognition that Jesus doesn't need our help, Jesus doesn't need our help, but he demands our commitment. He demands our obedience. He demands that we walk forward in a commitment that we shall not sin. We shall not dishonor his name. We shall not stumble in the path of this world. We will walk forward in a way that glorifies you and makes little of myself. Then men aren't so keen in following him anymore, are they? So these men would all run away. I don't think we have time for the naked guy this morning, so we will handle the naked guy next, not handle the naked guy next week. We will... We will very cautiously approach the naked guy <laughs> next week. Difference, I don't ask you this very often because we don't play Where's Waldo with the Bible. The purpose of this word is to show the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ, and that's what changes you. But I, I do feel like I'd be a fool not to ask you, where do you see yourself in this story? Please, God, don't tell me you think you're the hero. Are you the fool swinging a sword, wanting to use the weapons of this world, claiming that you're defending Jesus Christ when in reality all you're doing is defending your own hide? Are you the cowardly men that are going to go running as soon as you recognize that there's not a whole lot for you to do? Are you the evil men who have turned your back on Jesus Christ? Or are you just one of the crowd? Are you just one of those people that have followed along with Jesus Christ and you think you're a real disciple? I mean, there's things about you that look like the other people. You're kind of walking along the same path. You're surrounded by the same people. You're wearing the same clothes. You're speaking in the same language, but you've never truly turned and repented and trusted in him. 
I ask you to be honest with yourself about who you are. Not because you can change that, but because only he can. I'm asking you to cry out to God. If what you find is that you're not one that's truly following after him. Dear friends, I have to imagine that the pits of hell are filled with men that sat in places just like this and they didn't dare go alone into their quiet place and ask God to reveal whether or not they were truly his because they didn't want to know the answer. So I'm asking you in the moments to come and the days to come and the weeks to come to do that. We don't do an invitation around here and that's intentional. There's nothing that's going to happen here in five minutes. God's going to save you. God's going to save you. And there's going to be fruit from that all the days of your life. But I'm here, man. I stand at this door afterwards. I hang around. I got nothing to do after this. I'm around. I want you people to know that I'm here in the office all week long and I will drop absolutely whatever I'm doing. I will come to your house. I will come to your business. If you're a dude, we'll go to lunch. If you're a lady, I'll get another lady and we'll come to lunch with you. I will give you all the time you need to talk about where you are with regards to Jesus Christ. We're just not going to do it in five minutes because that does not honor him and it doesn't do right by you. But I do not want one of you walking out of here thinking somehow you're where you're not. Father God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. We thank you above and beyond everything else for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that our salvation is secure in his hand. We thank you that because we did nothing to earn it, we can do nothing to lose it. And yet, Father, we know based on the word running all throughout the New Testament, the deception comes easy that there will be many in those last days, many who served, many who taught, many who preached, many who led, many who experienced the power of God, and yet they never truly turned and gave their lives to him, that he never knew them, and because of that, they're lost forever. Father, I'm asking you to do a revealing work to make clear to us those that are yours and those that are not. And it calls us to fall down on our knees and cry out, either cry out with shouts of joy that I am his, I am his, or with pleading shouts of God, please save me. So Father, do your work by your spirit now. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.